three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, there's a robust community of friends, including Dominique Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and on ESPN's YouTube channel. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Coach George Carl, and my dilemma in life right now is my son is playing a playoff game in the G League, and I'm nervous about it. Oh, this is a tough one. Uh, sort of adjacent nerves or nerves for somebody else, especially uh, a loved one like that. I mean, the simplest is, you know, drink a lot of water, get some sleep, bring a stress ball, you know, make sure your body's ready for the stress and the turmoil of watching him coach. Um, also, you know, coach, I think you're a little older. You've been there before yourself, uh, but just in case, always a good reminder. Nobody likes an overzealous dad the screaming dad in, in the stand. So, you know, uh, you know, bring somebody who will sit with you and prevent you from losing your mind. Uh, someone that will be terribly embarrassed by you if you can't control yourself uh, when there are bad calls or things don't go your son's team's way. Uh, I think you've probably got that under control by now. You've got a lot of experience under your belt, but uh, yeah, bring a stress ball and bring a friend, uh, someone that'll calm you down. Good luck to him. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. If you're listening to this podcast right when it's released, I am one day away from leaving for my Grand Canyon trip. And uh, after roughly three months of training, I'm as ready as I'm going to be, which doesn't say much. It's sort of like it is what it is. Everything is everything. Uh, just I'm gonna, this is as ready as I'm gonna get. Can't get any readier. And it's uh, I'm two days away from starting it. So uh, that's all I got. Uh, send me some good thoughts. Uh, send good thoughts to my bad back and my midget Achilles calf and my wonky shoulder. Um, send them to my mom and my husband too. Uh, I believe we are going to have a great time. I'm very excited. I can't wait. I am also very nervous. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I hope I come back with minimal pains and aches and personal embarrassment and hits to my pride as an athlete. Uh, I hope all my do crew folks are feeling as excited about their goals and plans. I have created a Facebook for them, a group so they can kind of share their ambitions and what's, you know, sticking for them and what's not and how they're, how they're working through their, their new habits or their, or their journeys and goals. So uh, we'll be sharing a lot more of that too. I probably have to come up with a new goal when I get back from the Grand Canyon. Uh, But let me go ahead and just cross this off first before I get to that. Uh, This journey is uh, more than enough for me to figure out right now. Uh, Speaking of journeys, uh, my guest this week has had one hell of a life journey. and one of the greatest NBA coaches of all time spent five seasons as a player for the Spurs, then 27 years as a coach, the Cavs, Warriors, Sonics, Bucks, Nuggets, and Kings 
all uh, part of his time in the NBA. During his career, he led five different franchises to a total of 22 playoff appearances, led the Supersonics to the NBA Finals, was named NBA Coach of the Year, was also an All-Star Game head coach four times. He has a lifetime coaching record of 1,175 wins to 824 losses. That's sixth all-time in NBA career wins. He also had 12 seasons of 50 or more victories, three seasons of 60 or more. Uh, in Seattle, the team made the playoffs in each of his seven seasons as head coach, and his record with the Sonics, 384 and 150, is the best in franchise history in wins and winning percentage. He's now the host of the Truth and Basketball podcast, co-founder of Truth Plus Media, and not to bury the lead, just a couple days ago, Coach George Carl was named to the Basketball Hall of Fame. Loved taking a walk down memory lane with him, talking about his various stops in the NBA, the things that he learned, a little bit of butting heads with his players, his multiple cancer diagnosis and how they changed his perspective on life balance and uh, what he's up to now. I think you're going to love this interview. Enjoy. That's what she said. The timing to have Coach Carl could not be any better. Actually, hold on. It could be slightly better if UNC had won the national title game last night, coach, we're going to start with the heartbreak. We are fresh off of the loss to Kansas and you are a, a UNC alum. You played for uh, Dean Smith. Uh, what, what did you make of last night's game? It hurt. I mean, it hurt. The second half was painful. Um, I didn't sleep very well because of it. You know, it would have been uh-huh. an unbelievable weekend for me if I would have, if Carolina would have won a national championship when no one expected them to. But, you know, this morning waking up, talking to a couple guys, it's, you know, they had a hell of a run. I was in Chapel Hill for the Duke-Carolina game at Chapel Hill where Carolina got killed. And I didn't think they were very good at that time. And what well, how Hubert Davis kept them together, the emotion and – you know, what we all love about college basketball is that we got 20-year-old kids going at each other with tremendous emotion and enthusiasm and not really knowing what's going on in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, not knowing really how hard it is to win an NCAA championship. They're learning on the job. And Carolina grew up. Carolina came together. Mm-hmm. Carolina got better. Uh, and Everybody was saying they're lucky and St. Peter's made it easy on them and all that junk. The truth of the matter is they came together like men. And, you know, you did a great job of kind of cutting down to a five or six man rotation and demanding the guys that play, play the right way. Yeah, uh, they got they got they got more connected from the standpoint of who should be doing what. Uh, as the as the NCAA went on, they got a little bit more connected. Uh, the crazy kid from Oklahoma has been unbelievably good. <laughs> yeah, even it was, though, it was even impressive. Though, it was impressive, especially considering expectations and because of the moments throughout that they had to overcome to keep going. Obviously, the win over Duke and Coach. I don't know what that must feel like because of late, my teams have not been beaten up on their rivals. We've been taking the bad end of it. Uh, so at least you have that forever. The closing of the door on coach K's career. I heard someone say that, uh, they buried him when they beat him at the last game at Cameron indoor. And then they dug him up and buried him again in the final four. Uh, I, 
I mean, I don't feel sorry for Duke very often. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of antagonists, Duke friends. Uh, and I actually had a little window of sympathy for Coach K. Because <laughs> it's, it's just not the way you want to go out. It's about the worst way to go out. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's a hell of a coach. And, yeah. I mean, the whole thing about the Carolina Duke thing, is it's angry, it's honest, it's real. Uh, we feel that you know that there. It's it means more to us than it probably means to most fans. And 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 the truth of the matter is, I think we do it responsibly and with <laughs> with respect. Right. I mean, you know, I'm never going to be complimentary of Coach K, but I know he's a hell of a coach. And any time that we've had a professional interaction. He's always been classy, as I think yeah, I think seems, I have been too. Seems so, yeah. And that's the important part. You can get real petty with rivalries and have a lot of fun, but in the end, you still have to sort of respect the boundaries of of sport and and participation and all that. And man, has it been fun to just be an impartial viewer and not have to feel the uh, nerves or the upset of of going down. Um, okay, so you know, last night maybe not the most uh, exciting celebration for you, a little bit of a letdown, but lots of positives to celebrate, namely your recent induction or at least the announcement that you will be inducted into the hall of fame and i love your reaction as they named the teams that you have coached in your illustrious career you said sounds like i've been fired a lot <laughs> that's a great great response um one of the big moments though for you in in the induction is not just of course achieving the highest level uh of the sport in the hall of fame but this means you're actually gonna get your get your name hanging in the dean smith center in chapel hill right well i don't know the protocol of that but I know they have a Hall of Fame banner. And, you know, I, I've been in that building a lot. And my teams are hanging. You know, we have Final Four team and NIT championship team. And, and Carolina does a great job of celebrating their past. And they've brought us back numerous times in many different ways to celebrate Carolina basketball. I think it's the greatest basketball fraternity in the world. Uh, but, you know, my name or my number is not there. And, uh, you know, and I don't know if you, you, you probably, I had to send you a picture of the banner. There's one more spot. <laughs> There's 11 guys on that banner right now. And I would be the 12th. And it would look really cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, you, not, you, you don't. You don't start a career or think about in a career that you want to be a Hall of Famer. You know, you're always on the focus of winning a championship or winning a tournament or winning a game. And you never go, well, you know, I won that game. That might help me get in the Hall of Fame. You never see <laughs> that. And in a crazy way, the announcement of the Hall of Fame will give me the two things I probably want is appreciation and recognition for a career of excellence. And, I, and I'll not only for me, but for my family and all my basketball family and friends. Mm. I mean, all summer long, I'll be having fun with guys. Yeah, that's such a cool part of it. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, in the last four or five years, the time when you talk about the Hall of Fame is in the summer. You don't talk about the Hall of Fame in the regular season. 
you talk about in the summer when you're drinking beer and win lose isn't on the on your head all the time. And, and so I think I'll have those opportunities at Summer League and wherever else, golf tournaments, get togethers, whatever. And then of course the ceremony in September. So it's really meaningful because Dell Harris has been a good mentor to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dell Harris is one of those guys when I got in trouble. I would call him. When I was confused, I'd call Vance Wahlberg or Dell Harris or Bill Guthridge or guys like that. Uh, so I'm happy about that. My A friend of mine called me the other day and said, is Bob Huggins and you the same guy? <laughs> Are you the same two guys? <laughs> Which I thought was funny because Huggs is from Western Pennsylvania. I'm from Western Pennsylvania. I tried to get Huggins in the NBA a long time ago. Uh, I think he's a hell of a coach. And he does it very similar to me. He's kind of tough-minded and mm-hmm. demanding. And, uh, so I think it's just going to be a ball for, for yeah. my basketball family. Going in with your um, friends is particularly cool because you'll have all those moments throughout the summer to reconnect with people from along your basketball lifeline and reminisce and talk about the wins and the losses and the good times. But you're also going to be hanging out with Bob Huggins and Del Harris and, and be able to, to share that with friends, which is, is so cool. You know, it is incredibly important as you approach this moment, I imagine, to reflect on the various people that helped you get there and the steps that you took along the way that maybe in the moment didn't feel like they were going to add up to a Hall of Fame, but now you look back and they were all a part of it. So as you start to go through that process, have you figured out who you want to induct you? Oh, you know, I only have two guys that played for me in the Hall of Fame. That's that's, uh, Gary Payton and Ray Allen. I will definitely have, I would probably, you know, I haven't asked Gary yet, but, you know, he and I have so much history and so much yeah. connection now. Yeah. I mean, we, we started out wanting to fight each other every day. <laughs> and now, now he's probably my closest player friend that I have. And, uh, you know, they say I can have another one. And, you know, my gut says I'd like to have North Carolina represented probably in some way. So. You know, I'll probably talk to, you know, McAdoo or Bobby Jones or Roy or maybe I'll even call Michael and see if he wants to come. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the relationship with Gary is sort of um, a representation of a lot of your relationships across the league. He has that quote of I used to want to kill him every day. And now you say he's one of your closest friends. And there is a headbutting and an adversarial nature to a lot of the, the, the best players that you've coached. So I wonder if you're looking back now at your coaching, um, how much of the, of the butting of heads or the getting under guys skin, do you look back now and say, okay, that was in service of a better play or a a closer bond. And how much of it do you look back and say, ah, I was kind of a red ass. I probably could have toned it down a notch. Uh, you know, that's an interesting question because I, you know, the, the dysfunctional is what, what everybody lo- reads about and everybody wants to know about. You know, people don't understand that probably 75 or 80% of my relationships were really good. And I mean, I, I mean, the texts I got from, you know, 30 or 40 of my ex-players, I mean, they're really nice. I mean, some of the coaches and, uh, you know, 
But you know, my 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 belief in basketball is to be be honest, tell the truth, don't don't try to live in compromise, live in commitment. Hmm. Uh, and any time that players take away from what I think the team should be committed to, I don't think I come out angry, but <laughs> I I talk about it. I mean, hey, what's going on here? You know, and if that's button heads. I recommend that all coaches do it because I don't think I ever did anything to have a fight. All I wanted to do was get have the game of basketball, be responsible to the game that we have, and we be respectful. And in my history in the NBA, it's come, you know, we've gone from an or, a league that almost was going bankrupt in the 70s mm. to making $50 million a year. <laughs> And that's crazy. I mean, that's a that's a financial wow. And I was a part of it. And I, I grew up in the the days when we made. Uh, I mean, my first job in the NBA, I made eighty five thousand dollars as a head coach. Eighty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Think yeah. about that. It's um, it's incredible to look at the growth, and particularly to talk to someone like you that was a part of it at various levels throughout that growth. So you mentioned, you know, you grew up in, in Pittsburgh, you went to UNC and had some great years under Dean Smith. You're selected by the Knicks, but you choose to go sign with the Spurs and you're there for what, five years as a player. So you're a player in the seventies, which as you mentioned, is sort of this dark era. That's it's right after the merger with the ABA, people aren't really sure exactly what the product is. And there were f- fist fights and a lot of drug use. I mean, if you could take yourself back to being that player in the seventies, when you were with the Spurs, could you ever have imagined what we see now, this global game, the, the superstar level, even the player movement and empowerment of the players, it must feel like a completely different league, even though that's just the growth of the NBA over the last however many decades. It's a little bit of a storytelling of capitalism in right. sports, how, you know, how the, the the business world of make, trying to figure out how to make money in that playing a game of basketball has had it ups and downs. It's been good sometimes. It's been bad sometimes. Uh, but I never could imagine what I've gotten from the game of basketball. People don't forget when I came into the the ABA. And I'm an ABA guy. I yeah. totally and completely believe in the ABA. When I came in the ABA, you have Martin Luther King being shot, Robert F. Kennedy being shot before after that. And, and you just have a lot of racist stuff mm-hmm. going on. In, and I'm 22 years old. And what I found out is I thought the ABA, now what I know now is the ABA integrated basketball. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you want to say, the NBA has some type of quota system in the early 70s, whatever it was. I've heard not more than five players, not more than two on the court at a time. The ABA had none of that. And the ABA didn't take the kids from Grambling or didn't take the kids from Prairie View or didn't take, you know, a black athlete from the South. And the ABA said, we're just trying to find the best players. Yeah. And I thought that was really good for basketball. And, and I say that because when I'm watching the NBA today, it looks like ABA basketball. Mm-hmm. 
the three-point shot is crazy. Um, the big man doesn't have a lot of value. And there's a lot of guards out there that know how to play. Yeah. Flashy, uh, chunks, yeah, exciting player. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting, too, because you did um, – You've been in a, in a number of leagues. You started your coaching career uh, with the Spurs for a couple of years, but then you went to the CBA as, and that was your first head coaching gig. How different was it when you transitioned <coughs> from coaching in the CBA uh, to becoming a coach with the Cavs? Because you were so young for both. I mean, 33, when you got that Cavs job, how much did the CBA actually prepare you or how much was it um, really learning on the job with the Cavs? I think the CBA is one of the best places to learn basketball in the world because you're dealing with maybe not on a daily basis, but on a weekly basis, there's something going to go crazy. (laughs) In the CBA back then, it could be a bus trip or it could be a a plane and not making a connection. Or your best player just went to Europe or your best player got called up by the Lakers. I mean, you have so many different problems that you run into in coaching and you get it first-handed, you know, you got to live it. You got to live it in the CBA. And fortunately, I, I had good enough teams that we usually made the playoffs and had a lot of success on the court. But I think the the, the mirage of, of experiences that I went through in the CBA have been immensely helpful. Mm. to my early career and also even in my later career. Uh, my son coaches in the G League because I, I tell him, I think this if you want to be a head coach, coach. Being an assistant coach, you're not coaching. You're not feeling what I'm feeling when you're an assistant coach. And, I mean, I, you know, Kobe wants to be an assistant or a head coach in the NBA. And I think he's working on that very well. But his choice has been, instead of going the assistant coach route, he got offered to in the Lakers. He got offered to a head coach, and he yeah. chose that. And I'm happy for him because he's had a great year this year with the Philadelphia 76ers G League team, and Kobe's doing a really good job. And I really, I'm I'm hopeful that someday he'll get an opportunity to coach in the NBA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As I mentioned, you got that opportunity really young. And I, I know it's always hard for all of us to go back many years and try to put ourselves back in that headspace. But I wonder if you can. You're 33. 
Now we know after years and years, you're a Hall of Fame coach. You're very sure of yourself. You're very sure of your hoops knowledge. But back then, can you look back and say what you didn't know then? What I didn't know? Yeah. You know, uh, I always thought I, I could coach in the NBA. But I never understood how the game we have today is so much bigger than the game I started in. And today's game is harder. I think to get a, to get your feet ingrained. I mean, people. I think you probably know, but people don't know. I started my career two and nineteen <laughs> in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. I lost my first nine, won one game against Atlanta, lost ten more, and then I beat Atlanta again. So my thank God for Atlanta. Two, <laughs> the first two wins I've had in basketball were against the Atlanta Hawks, and I I started two and nineteen, and we made the playoffs. We turned it around and made the playoffs and still one of my favorite years of coaching. Um, World Be Free and Phil Hubbard and Mel Turpin and Roy Henson and Johnny Davis and John Bagley. There's not a lot of great players there, but somehow we got, got turned around in the right direction. And we went on and played actually the Boston Celtics who won the championship that year. Played them a very good series. I'm, I'm watching on YouTube when COVID hit. I went back and watched a lot of YouTube basketball games, and those games were really a lot of fun. Um, but what I didn't know was, you know, I didn't know about, you know, the personality of a head coach and how, how important it is to an organization. My first couple stops, my ego got in the way a lot. And I think where I grew up was when I went to Spain. And I took my family, two young kids. I think Kobe and Kelsey were in fourth grade and kindergarten. And we lived in Spain for two years. And it was, it was hard. It was, it was a, we went from the easy life of America to living in a foreign country. And then Real Madrid, if you don't win a championship, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that that's where I realized I got I got to be more connected with my surroundings rather than my ego and my narcissistic narcissistic oh I can't pronounce that word <laughs> personality at times right and I'm really thinking that my my Spain experience is a place where I think mentally I realized I can do this but I also got to be smarter than how I act. Yeah, that's an interesting balance, that balance of uh, leadership and authority, but still the give and take with players and the understanding of, of when to listen instead of instead of just talk. And, you know, I, I think about some of the really strong and and uh, personalities that you got to work with. And, and Gary Payton, certainly one of them. Uh, when you got to Seattle, I mean, that that team is still one of my favorites of all time. It's easy for me to say that because I grew up with the Bulls. So we always ended up on the right side of things, but I still got to enjoy the matchups. I got to enjoy the competition. Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, like this was this incredible, incredible <coughs> team that you got to be with. And you, you take them to a franchise best 64 and eight in 95, 96. Um, you know, you you sweep the Rockets to get to the finals and then you beat the Jazz to get to the NBA finals. And of course, I have to ask, what's it like being on the other side 
of the Jordan years because in Chicago, it always looks great looking back, but you're one of those unfortunate, great historic teams that just had Jordan in the way. Well, you know, uh, we had our opportunity. He went away and played baseball for two years and we choked. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah, so, he gave you a shot. <laughs> you know, playing against Michael, I thought we did a hell of a job on him. I think he shot under 40% for the series. I know he was voted the MVP, but I think that was given to him because he was the best. Because the best player on that court, I thought, was Sean Kemp in that series. Mm -hmm. I thought Sean played extremely well. And I don't know. I went back and watched that series when COVID hit, too. That's ugly basketball, man. That is really defensive-minded, physical basketball. I mean, game six, when they beat us, I think they beat us 85, 78 or something like that. I mean, an ugly game. I mean, nobody could score. And they were a great defensive team, and we were a damn good defensive team. And the guy that probably beat us, in my mind, was Dennis Rodman. Right. Rodman had some big rebound games. He had, I think, two, maybe three, 20 rebound games. The extra possessions, his defensive mentality. I think in the end, uh, and, and also we made a, a, an error on our travel after game two. We should have stayed in Chicago. And we flew back and caught a snowstorm. And, you know, we didn't get back into the, into Seattle until like 6 o'clock Saturday morning. And we played 12 o'clock on Sunday. So it was, it was my inexperience of being in the NBA Finals a little bit that in a lot of ways gave them game three. And after that, we started playing them pretty even the most of the way. Uh, last, you, you mentioned you rewatched that series during COVID. That was also when all of us were watching The Last Dance. And Jordan <laughs> pulls out the, oh, you know, George Carl didn't say hi to me at the restaurant. And I took that personal. It feels like he would have taken it personally if you did say hi. He would have taken it personally if you didn't, and he would have taken it personally if you weren't even at that restaurant. But I love the way that he frames that in his mind. You're sitting at home watching, I presume. What did you make of his his storytelling around that? I don't know. He says it happened in Chicago. There was a situation in Seattle that I, where I know I was at the same restaurant with him. Now, Maybe I, I was there with him in Chicago and I knew about it. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. That's 30 years ago, man. Um, but I know that one in Seattle was his group of guys were over way over there in the corner. And I'm over here in another corner. And I, whatever, we are now like 02, maybe 03. And the last guy I wanted to talk to was Michael Jordan. <laughs> And the protocol of North Carolina basketball, I'm the older guy. He's supposed to come to me. Oh, I see. Okay. I didn't know he was king. I didn't know that. <laughs> but Michael, I played golf with Michael a half a dozen times since that game. Yeah. He's never mentioned it to me one time. So he's I think a gamer. He the motivator. Yeah. He's a gamer. He shows up for games and he shows up when the camera's on too. He and knows when make it's a story up in a tale. Oh, That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, let's let's move on from Seattle. You you go to the Bucks, which is a I mean, you have incredible success in Seattle. And then you go to a team that hadn't made the playoffs in six or seven seasons. Um, you got them to the postseason three straight years. Uh, what was that experience like with the Bucks? And how is it now watching 
as Giannis and, and this team brings them back into the to the national conversation and, and the title? I had a great time in Milwaukee. I mean, I mean, um, uh, Milwaukee, my relationship with Ernie Grunfeld and Senator Cole were probably my best relationship in basketball. The city of Milwaukee, we had, I had a great relationship with. Um, and to me, uh, I mean, the year, we, the year we almost went to the finals against Philadelphia, uh, we missed the jump shot. Glenn Robinson missed the end game five, missed the, about a 15-foot wide open jump shot to win that game. And if we won that game, I think we would have won the series. And uh, uh, But you know, Milwaukee was good for me. Uh, I went from a Seattle team that was really defensive-minded to Milwaukee, who's an offensive team that didn't play much defense. So, you know, my, my legacy in Seattle is defense mm -hmm. and my legacy in Milwaukee is probably offense. Yeah. And, and that's, that's NBA coaching. You got to build right. a system just to the your, players. Yeah. You got to build your system got. around the players. Um, it took me a while to figure it out, but you know, that one year when we played Philly in the conference finals, was probably, probably the least talented team I've ever had that made it that far. But we were really kind of, it's kind of like Carolina, you know, we got it going. Yeah. You know, we, we beat Doc Rivers in Orlando in the first round, had a great series against Charlotte in a game seven. And then we played Philly in a game seven. And uh, we had our starting power forwards suspended on the airplane flight mm. to Philadelphia. That was always interesting. So we can throw that out for the conspiracy guys. <laughs> we'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Celebrate. Celebrate. Celebrations. That's one of my favorite things. Uh, this is a good word. So mid 15th century to perform publicly with appropriate rights. So originating from the mass from the Latin celebratus, celebratus, uh, much frequented, kept solemn famous. Now, most of my celebrations are not solemn, <laughs> but that is the root. Uh, and of course, now it becomes um, used for a number of things, not relating, not relating to mass at all, um, but you can perform a sacrament publicly with appropriate rites. You can honor an occasion or a holiday. You can mark something with festivities or a deviation from routine, or you can hold up or play up for public notice. Uh, celebrate the glory of nature with a poem. Um, I remember once seeing in a magazine, someone complaining about too much celebrating overly done first birthdays for babies, celebrating minor holidays, you know, going big for Cinco de Mayo or something. And I say F that I say celebrate all of them. I was very angry reading that magazine because I thought to myself, first of all, what a negative view of what are usually fun things. And also we really have no idea how many we get. You never know how many you're going to get. You never know what might change. If you are healthy and you have friends and family and loved ones that are healthy, then you should enjoy it. Uh, because as they, uh, as they say, you never know if you're going to get another day or what it's going to look like. So I celebrate all the things I really do. Speaking of great words, you gonna learn today. The word of the week is groke, groke, G R O A K. In his 1910 book, P W Joyce defined groke 
in the book English as we speak it in Ireland as, quote, to look on silently like a dog at people while they're eating, hoping to be asked to eat a bit. The compiler of English dialect dictionary held that the verb meant to whimper or cry for something or to look over one with a watchful and apparently suspicious eye. Wright also said it could be a noun uh, in the sense of a child who waits at mealtime in the expectation of getting something to eat. Um, I have three grokers in my house, all three of my dogs, my husband too, if you count, but usually my husband is not the one groking. I am the one who has watched him heat up a frozen pizza or bring home a delicious sandwich. And then I'm the one who grokes looking on silently, hoping, begging, pleading for a bite, which is then usually outsized and not appreciated by him when he recognized how much of his food I just ate. Uh, I love this word. I've never heard of this word. I just found it and it makes me very happy. So in a sentence, by the end of the Grand Canyon hike, as I'm dragging ass up the side of a damn mountain, totally out of snacks, dreaming of a giant plate of pasta and a bottle of wine, I guarantee that I'll be groking at my fellow hikers as they eat their kind bars and trail mix. Groak, the good word. Now let's get back to the interview. Let's talk about the Nuggets time. And this is particularly interesting because obviously so much success there, but also you you talked a lot about your time with the with the Nuggets and, and the players that played for you there in your book, Furious George, my 40 years surviving NBA divas, clueless GMs and poor shot selection. This came out in 2017. And you talked about after as you were sort of promoting the book that it should be Furious George for 10 years, frustrated George all the time and friendly George right now. And it does feel like when you talk about the book, there's a softening of some of the things that you said in it. Do you think that that's because the reaction that you got from some of the players was surprising to you? Um, and, and maybe it makes you reconsider some of the things you wrote or is it, or is it, um, is it just inevitable when you try to sort of pin down butterflies with a book that time will pass and your feelings on those same things might change? Oh, I think the thing that when you talk about it, the thing that was annoying is it's my first book. <laughs> and I didn't know all this reaction was going to come. I didn't know. And the truth of the matter is, I don't think many people read the book. I think they read the excerpts right. of the book. Mm -hmm. Because the pulse of the book is a celebration. The pulse of, of the theme of the book is, let's go out and talk about all the fun things that happened in my career. But there are parts that I take, I break some eggs. Uh, but you know, when you coach almost 2,000 games, <laughs> don't you gotta tell about that story too? Right. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I don't think I, I don't think I went after anybody to hurt them. I was just telling them maybe to tell the fan, the book reader, that the game of basketball is changing. Yeah, And the way it was coached in the 80s is not the same as the 90s or now. It's totally different. It evolves. And money money is the, probably the biggest theme of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens in a locker room, what happens before a game and after a game and in the game, it's a game. It's not about money. It's a, it's a game that you're, you're worried about how to figure out the win. 
Yeah. And there are situations that come up that disagreements happen. You play 100 games a year, you know, you're not going to be happy 100 days in those years. Mm-hmm. There are going to be moments where it's going to be very difficult. And there are going to be moments there's going to be confrontations. And there are going to be moments there's going to be celebrations. It feels like the back and forth between you and Mello didn't stop with the book, though. And I find my opinions on Mello, thankfully, don't get dissected like yours because I've never met the guy. But my complaint about him has seemed to be similar to yours, which is I want him to make the choices that are going to be best for him as a basketball player and his career instead of just where they're going to pay him the most. And that's not to deny him the opportunity to make the most money. I just felt like, you know, he had the chance to go to the Bulls and be in a great situation. He chose the Knicks instead. He wanted to be home, sure, but also the money made it tough for them to put a team around him. You know, in some of the situations, it feels like he laments the lack of a title and maybe not living up to the entirety of his potential, but the choices he made along the way are the reason maybe the career will look the way it does. And when you say stuff like that, everybody sits up real straight and listens. And you said it in the book. You also said it um, on Twitter when, when you retweeted a post about him staying up at night, thinking about not having a title. And you said, yeah, we were staying up at night too, trying to figure out what to do with you and how to win, despite you maybe not having the focus we wanted. Do you talk to Mello ever anymore? Is there a playfulness in that? Or is that one of the relationships that that got stuck and hasn't unstuck? Oh, I mean, there's a lot to that. I mean, it's hard to explain it on, you know, over this. You know, every time when I was coaching in the league and I went into New York, Mello and I somehow, some way got, you know, we, we, we had more than a 30-second conversation. We sat right. down for five or ten minutes. Um, I think Mello has a different attitude about the NBA than I do. I mean, I look at the NBA as like a gift. Okay, they're paying us millions of dollars to play the game of basketball. And I think Mello looks at it as, how can I make more money? And that every day I wake up, I go, I hope they don't shut this down because this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's my bias from my generation yeah. and in a lot of ways I think Mello was the beginning of the uh, maybe the AAU guy that is now coming into the NBA trying to be bigger have a bigger brand have a bigger pocketbook off the court than on the court um, I'm just happy to get that paycheck every, every two weeks because right. I get to go to the gym and wear sweats all my life. <laughs> I think that is a tough balance between, yeah, go get yours and not be ever bitter or jealous if the guys that come after you are benefiting from the game that you helped create and making more money and getting the the sponsorships and everything else. But in the end, I think real hoopers and athletes, it will always still come down to winning and being with your team and putting your best out there and being able to look back and not regret that you didn't have the opportunities you could have taken based on your talents and the talent of those around you in favor of something like a, a check. But I mean, easy to say when you don't have the numbers handed to you on a piece of paper and say, here's what we'll give you. And here's what you can have. Um, it's easy for, for us, I guess, to say not you as much because you're in it, but for the fan to judge the player on that. Well, the one thing mellow, I thought Mello was always slow to adapt to who he was. I mean, I don't know when it was. I don't know, it was five years ago or seven years ago. I think if Mello went to the bench 
mm-hmm. and became a six man, he could have become the next Jamal Crawford. Right. And put that on him being an all-star for whatever, 10 years. And then the next 10 years being six man of the year award for 10 years. I think he'd have a great career, but he was always slow to adapt. You know, he was slow to giving up being the first first fiddle, and he didn't want to be second fiddle. Then he wanted, then he, he wanted to be third fiddle instead of a role player, and he still wanted to be a starter instead of a bench guy. Yeah, and I thought he was like late in adapting to probably who he was, uh, and because of that, he had conflict. Yeah. And failure and frustration. And that's a that's a real tough transition for a superstar. Um, and it took him a minute. I remember him saying, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be no bench player. And then fairly soon after he popped up and he and he embraced the role and it, and it was great. But it took it took longer than many thought, like you said. When you were with the Nuggets, you back in 2005 had um, prostate cancer had surgery, you were cleared to coach. Um, and then another incidence of cancer, um, later, um, at this time, neck and throat cancer, um, both of them while you were, while you were coaching, how do you make the decision or balance the fear of dealing with that and those diagnoses with still a devotion to the team, or maybe, how how good is it for me to still have basketball to think about and care about and not only focus on, on the illness? How do you balance those things? Well, I would probably say poorly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a basketball lifer. I'm a basketball junkie. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gym guy. Um, and, you know, I, I'm almost... Convinced that a lot of my cancer was caused by stress hmm. that I put on myself as a coach in the NBA. Hmm. After the second cancer, I got myself a little more balanced. Uh, after the first cancer, you know, we were my it was my after my first year here in Denver, and I was excited about our challenge and our opportunity. And prostate cancer, not knocking, every cancer is dangerous. A prostate is one that we have gotten pretty good control over. And uh, so when I got healthy after that, I went back to my old ways and didn't think about maybe I should change a little bit. Mm. The second one, head and neck cancer, woke me up. And uh, coming back after that was a hard task. It was challenging, both mentally and physically. And I learned a lot about me. Because of it, I learned to delegate more. I learned to give her more responsibilities to my assistants. And I learned that you don't have to have big ebb and flows, you know, highs and lows. And I tried to stay more, and for a better phrase, middle of the road, calmer. Uh, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, the most fun I ever had was my last year in Denver coaching that team after the mellow trade. And you know, the Sacramento area is a nightmare. But, Got uh, so quick. I mean, I, <laughs> I was in Sacramento for a year and a half. Yeah. I so love quick. Sacramento. Mm. I wish Sacramento would have a good team. Yeah. I would go. I would. I think city of Sacramento deserves a good team. Mm-hmm. And I just hope someday in the near future, they get a good team. Yeah. You know, you care a lot about um, working with 
cancer related causes because of of your bouts with it and and um a third bout right melanoma of the eye for you and then also your son um surviving a cancer diagnosis so it's been around you a lot and it and it has become a cause that's super important to you which i think um you know shows in the way you talk about it the, the effect it had on you and and how you how you look back at at the changes that you made in your career do you feel like um when you look at the end of that King's run, does it feel unfinished to tie things up with a year and a half stint in Sacramento that you was a disaster? Would you wish that you could have a different closing piece and, and still have any interest in, in coaching with a different closing piece? I have an interest in coaching. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's an NBA coaching. Uh, I have a 17 year old senior daughter in high school. She goes off to college next year. Could I coach in Australia? Could I coach in China? Could I show, coach in Europe again? Mm. Uh, you know, I would say that that window is closing, but I'm not, I, I would not say no. <laughs> I would not say no. I would probably prefer maybe a kind of a consulting or connection with a team to help coaches and management understand that I think right now the personality between management and coaching is is so different than it has ever been and it seems like it's getting further apart hmm. and I still think the good organizations win when they're together yeah um, but that's just my philosophy I mean I still think I think an NBA coach is as valuable not as a star player, but probably as valuable as that guy that starts for you, hmm. that is more the glue guy, uh, like the Bruce Bowen or the Robert Horry right. or, or the Michael Curry or some guy that, you know, good teams have a glue guy. Right. Good teams have that, that winner. And I think the head coach is still very valuable to an NBA championship type of type of organization. In the meantime, while you're figuring out if you're going to go coach abroad or, or do that, you've got this media company, Truth Plus Media, which does a lot of content on sports, leadership, human performance. You've got a bunch of podcasts, including your looks back at a couple different um, teams, and you're working on a long form documentary. And one of the teams that's gotten the real focus is Seattle. And yeah. you are dedicated Speaking of a place that deserves a good team and oh. deserves any team. And again, one of my favorites of all time was that Sean Kemp, Gary Payton. And it's such a bummer um, to not be able to see NBA in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Are you working actively towards trying to bring the NBA back there? I will do anything, but you know, I live in Denver, so I'm not actively daily. I've been to Seattle probably three or four times with the Kraken situation and uh, Lenny Wilkins had, they had a kind of a ceremony for Lenny Wilkins and my daughter lives in Olympia. My older daughter lives in Olympia. So I go up there half a dozen times a year anyways. Uh, Bob Whitsitt is still in Seattle and he and I communicate about the, what is going on up there. Everything I hear is really positive, and uh, and I'm I'm I don't know of an NBA basketball fan that is your age or my age that doesn't want a team in Seattle. 
Mm-hmm. I've never met a fan say, oh, we don't want to go back to Seattle. Yeah. Seattle was a great place. And players too. Players have great memories of going oh, to I, Seattle. I mean, yeah. And, you know, I don't know what the NBA desire is of uh, when they're going to expand, if they're going to expand. I, I get the feeling they want to expand. And uh, if, if, if there's a bigger role for me in Seattle, I'm in. Yeah. If there's a small role in Seattle, I'm in. Yeah. Uh, people who are into those Sonics teams, Iconic Sonics is the name of the series of pods on Truth Plus Media. Such a cool um, look back. I'm, I'm pumped about how the Seattle Storm have maybe taken advantage a bit of the lack of NBA in that city because I love Sue Bird and I think they've really taken over um, in a really cool way. But man, it'd be cool to have the Sonics back back in Seattle. Hey, well, I got you and, and you were talking about the changing uh, front office and coach relationships. I wonder what you make of the dynamic of player power now, because I sometimes get a little pushback. I, I'm very much on the side of player empowerment and evening the stakes for the teams and the players in terms of getting to decide where you want to be and who you want to play with. But I also think it can be difficult to put together a team if someone signs a four-year max deal and then a year into it, they say, I'm not playing here anymore. I'm forcing my way out because you've made all the decisions around that player with the expectation that they'll fulfill that four years. So how do you see the changing sort of power structure between players and management? Well, uh, you know, Sarah, a long time ago, I kind of said to myself, I'm not very good in management situations (laughs) dealing with money. Right. Um, so I, I kind of always lived in the gym and coaching was my gig. And I didn't really spend a lot of time on contracts. And But, you know, the money is unbelievably big. And now it's gone from money, which is important to people, but power is now probably above money. And I think players and owners right now are in a little bit of a wrestling match. Uh, is that good or bad? I think business has been pretty good. I think we've survived mm-hmm. COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like the league has got some great young players. This, this year, is kind of, I think the, the team makeup, there's not that lot of, there's a lot of parity. Um, we don't know who the best team is right now, which I think is good for basketball, but a little yeah. bit, I kind of like. The Suns will fight team. you about that, but uh but there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good teams that we wouldn't be shocked if they won at all. Though the Suns certainly are trying to put a bid in for dominate. Well, Phoenix is no question right now ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. they're on top of the mountain. But you know, uh, they, there's a long way. I mean, people, uh, people, uh, I don't think understand that to win an NBA championship, you got to beat four teams. Probably all four now are good. Mm-hmm. Probably three are. Three are very good. One might be good. So, you know, it's not, it's not an easy ride. And, and, and what's, what I think is kind of funny about NBA basketball is we pay guys $40 million. And then to win an NBA championship, they get paid like 200000 <laughs> You know, for two months of work, yep. they, don't, they don't get paid anything. It's the glory, man. The glory, the glory to win yeah. the ring, to get the ring. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But, but uh, do you like the playing play. tournament? Speaking of, because that kind of incentivizes regular season. It's here. You're going to get paid a lot of money to play whether you win or not. Um, the play-in tournament is another way they're trying to make it so that teams don't tank at the end and have a reason to keep trying if they're near that 9-10. Do you like it or you, you prefer the old format? Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I don't. You know, the, when, I'm, when I'm sitting on the sidelines for the last six or seven years, the one thing I was naive to was I thought we could win championships in a small market. And that does happen once in a while. San Antonio's got everybody thinking it could happen. Right. Like it. Milwaukee, yeah. And Milwaukee got done a couple of years ago. But I'm going to tell you, it's hard. Mm. It's hard to get a Giannis or get a Tim Duncan. Uh, and and I know there's a lot of a lot of philosophy about you know the the you know like how Philadelphia did it, you know, the what was called the plan or right, the, the process. The process. And I'm going, <laughs> the process that Philadelphia did was they lost a lot of games and taught losing <laughs> as much as they taught winning. Mm. And they think winning is a well developed talent. Yeah, there's a talent side to basketball, but there's a mental side to basketball that losing doesn't help very much. Yeah. So, you know, for me, uh, uh, I, I just enjoy. I kind of like the old way. Yeah. And what I think they should do is they should try to magnify the importance of the regular season. And the best way to do that is take the top 16 teams, no more conferences, no right. more divisions, just the top 16 teams and one place 16. Yeah, that's and true. You'll have I mean, some great matchups. You'll have some yeah. unbelievable matchups in the yeah. first round. Yeah. The, the plan I'm torn on, there's parts of it I, I think are smart. And then I also look at um, the NBA might be real happy about it because, you know, you get to see the Nets in the postseason. But talk about not really validating the work of the one or two seed if they end up having to face a Nets team that's down that low in part because of injury and vaccinations and everything else. Um it complicates things for sure. But uh, with, with the Lakers currently out and trying to get back in and the Nets hanging near the bottom, I'm sure right now the NBA is feeling pretty good about, about changing that policy to keep some of those stars in the mix there. Um, Coach, we're running out of time. So you got to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. You can't do any job relating to basketball. What do you do for work instead? I'm a storyteller now. I love that. Yeah, I you're, like you're one of us. Stories. You're a medium. Have, you're a gas bag like me now, the media. I have like <laughs> I have like five things about basketball that I love to tell stories, and all my friends know. I tell them all the time. One of them, you know, I love the ABA. Yeah, I love Carolina basketball. Mm -hmm. I love Coach Smith and Coach Guthridge. Mm -hmm. I love my experience of Real Madrid and European basketball. And I am intrigued by African basketball. Oh, cool. I think it's going to be really interesting where African, I think, basketball goes. Nice. And I think what the NBA and Obama and kind of the, I know this is their first year of, of games. I haven't seen many of them. But I just think there's a tremendous amount of talent yeah. in Africa that we have not touched. Yeah. As where I think, 
I don't think we bankrupt Europe, but I think we got most of the good players out of Europe playing the NBA. Right. And so, so Africa, I, a little untapped I think resource Africa right now. The blow up right. spot probably won't be in the next one or two years, but I say three or four or five. I think there's some good things that could happen there. That's a good thing to tell stories about. That's very interesting. I would be interested in that. Um, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, most scared I've ever been was ocular melanoma can kill you. Mm. Prostate cancer and head and neck cancer, they're dangerous if they get too far, too far advanced. But there's a strand of ocular melanoma um, that can kill you. And I had to go through about a six month, six week process. I think it was in the next 2017 of where I had to have a biopsy on my cancer in my eye to see if it was strand A, it's strand A, strand B, and strand AB. Mm-hmm. And one of them kills you. Mm. Fortunately, I got the dumb one. That's always supposedly going to stay in my eye the rest of my life. And that way, and also when my son got, came down with cancer, That's scary that was, sure. I was angry. I was very angry. Yeah, that feels unfair for you to right. have it three times in him as well. Um, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Oh man! Um, being uh, at Augusta on <laughs> nice. a Sunday. There you go. That'd be a good one. Uh, number four. What current celebrity from music or sports or TV or politics would you most like to be your best friend? I want to be the guy from Japan that's a hell of a baseball player. Hmm. I like your Sho- guy. Shohei Otani. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. He seems like a fun guy too. Like he seems like he's got a good personality, good attitude. Yeah, he's got a he's got his personality's coming out now. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Slow golfers. Oh, I don't like slow anything. I'm not a relaxed person. I don't want you to walk right. slow in front of me. I don't want you to do anything slow when I need to get to what you're doing. I'm very impatient. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I don't like guys that don't understand that the game of golf is not to be right. played slow. Keep it moving. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? The one thing that came to mind, I'm sure I was probably more embarrassed than somewhere in life, but I was coaching a CBA game and my pants ripped, and I didn't have any underwear on. Oh, no. Fortunately, that was somewhere in a small town in Montana. Did you notice first, or did someone else tell you? Someone, my trainer noticed. <laughs> okay, good. I was showing some skin. Oh, that's great. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Improve. Oh, Well, I would say I would probably like to be more strong. I would like to be as strong as I once was hmm. for I could hit the golf ball 30 yards further. There you go. Any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? First people who come to mind are the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Oh, both so good. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Well, I'm not, I don't know if this is a failure or not. I'm still trying to figure out why I why I'm still not coaching the Denver Nuggets. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Well, there were some, you know, back to the conspiracy theorists, right? About whether your game plan was given away or any of those things, right? There's, there's some conspiracy theories around the end there. Well, there's the one that I've come to mind is uh, game seven of the Western Conference Finals in 1993. Game seven, Charles Barkley. How many free throws do you think are a lot of free throws in a game? For one player or a team? A team. 30-something? Okay. Uh, what you would think the number would be for a game seven. That'd be ridiculous. Yeah, that'd be a lot. Um, yeah, I mean. Oh, game seven that we lost to Charles Barkley, who uh, played Michael Jordan. Right. The Phoenix Suns shot 64 free throws. <laughs> oh, Lord. Did you hear that? 64 <laughs> free throws. <laughs> and there's no conspiracy behind that? They, they, didn't, they didn't want Gary Payton versus Michael Jordan. They wanted Charles Barkley versus wow. Michael Jordan. I'm going to start digging on this one. 64 free throws. 64. That's okay. All right. So, yeah, I think some people wonder why you're not still coaching the Nuggets. Uh, final question. What three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? I got four words. Okay, I'll give it to you. It's a we game. It's a we we game. I like that. You also could have stuck with three and just said Hall of Fame. Because, you know, if I was in the Hall of Fame, I'd be like, yeah, you could just stick with that every time you I'm talk about yet. me. I'm not in yet. <laughs> That's true. We'll wait till after the induction. Uh, Coach, thanks so much for doing this. It was so great to talk to you and uh, really cool all the all the stuff you're doing. And I think a lot of basketball fans go check out Truth Plus Media. There's some great forgotten seasons, iconic Sonics, a lot of look backs at some of the teams you were with. It's good stuff. It's been a lot of fun. Stories out. Yeah. Congrats on the Hall of Fame. Looking forward to the speech. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. I'm a little nervous about that speech, but I'll do my best. Yeah. Just ask Michael for tips. He nailed it. Everybody loved his. Okay. Thank <laughs> you, sir. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. I tell you what to watch, what to listen to. Uh, what to read. I tell you a great story, whatever's on my mind. I have a couple things on my mind this week. Uh, number one, I was talking to coach Carl about the rivalry between UNC and Duke and how we celebrate the pettiness of the biggest rivalries. And I got to give a shout out to my, my friend, Jack Gallagher. He's actually the manager for the band Mount Joy. And I've had um, Matt, the lead singer, Mount Joy on this podcast before. Go back and listen if you missed it. It's great. And that band is great. But Jack uh, is a music manager and he's a UNC grad die hard. And he was down in new Orleans for the game. And on Sunday, the morning after his UNC team defeated Duke, sending coach K off into retirement on a sour note, both ruining his final game at Cameron indoor, and then ruining the attempt to get to the championship game. Jack decided he wouldn't just celebrate like anyone else nursing a hangover and readying himself for the national title game. No, he hired a second line band in new Orleans to march a group of them down the streets of New Orleans to celebrate the death of Coach K's career. It started with about 40 people. He said by the end, they had over 200 marching the streets of New Orleans toward a bar, carrying signs that said things like, 
F Grayson Allen, uh, RIP Coach K, RIP uh, Kville, the area outside of uh, Cameron Indoor where, where the kids camp out to try to get the seats uh, or the standing room, I guess, for the student section. Uh, signs, music, revelry, so petty, so beautiful. I wished that I was a UNC fan that day because celebrating the end of a rival coach's career with a second line in New Orleans sounds like a damn good time. So shout out to Jack for that. Uh, also, speaking of former guests, uh, Adam McKay, a recent guest, and I was out with my friend and this exchange literally had me crying, laughing. Uh, she said, hey, listen to your pod with Adam McKay. It was really good. I wish you'd asked him more about starting comedy at his synagogue. And I said, what? I didn't know that. And she said, no, that's that's what you started with him. You talked about him getting into comedy at Temple. And I said, yeah, Temple University, uh, to which she replied, OMG, I am so Jewish. <laughs> yeah, McKay, you just hear that word. You know, he's part of the tribe for sure. <laughs> she said she said she got stuck on the Adam part uh, too much. Uh, finally, a shameless plug this week for some merch that I inspired and proceeds are going to the National Center for Transgender Equality. Uh, so a fan of a misogynist blog tried to troll me and talk shit when I was guest hosting around the horn, uh, calling me a pig and otherwise. And my response was, honey, you can call me a pig. You can make endless accounts to try to please the sad Twitter overlord who sent all of his puny petered minions my way today. But in the end, I'm happy, healthy, hot, rich, and living a baller life while you're stuck making fake Twitter accounts to harass women. It was easy throwaway, but apparently the line stuck and merch was born. So if you go to shop.pwrfwd.co, so power forward, but without the vowels, or if you just search PWRFWD, I'm sure the site will come up. You can grab a T-shirt or a mug with the quote, happy, healthy, hot, rich, and live in a baller life. And listen, if you're not all of those things, you can sip it or wear it into existence. Or you can get it for a friend or a family member that is most definitely all of those things. Uh, I will talk to you all when I'm back up from the canyon. Fingers crossed that I do make it back up from the canyon. Don't forget, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Leave me a nice review. Maybe I'll shout you out in a future episode. Uh, thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 